everybody, and welcome to another beautiful Thursday morning. You're listening to Bhavani at IE Green on the Progressive Radio Network. And I have a great show for all of you today. Dana Ellis Hunis will be joining me. She is the author of a great, great book called Recipe for Survival, What You Can Do to Live a Healthier and More Environmentally Friendly Life. And she's just amazing. In this book, she just connects all the dots for us and makes it really easy for us to follow this recipe to um, make an impact. And so I'm really excited to have her on. I'll tell you more about her when she comes on. But first, I want to talk to you about some things going on in the world, some ways you can take action, and of course, share my weekly recipe with you. So first, you know, this week, you know, just watching the what's going on in Ukraine is just breaking my heart and everybody I talk to's heart. I mean, we have not really lived through, I mean, we have lived through wars, but this is just unprovoked, one-sided aggression that we just haven't really seen like this. And it's horrifying, um, the civilians and, you know, women, children, businesses, everyone just being impacted by this is horrible. And so I know lots of people are really reaching out, trying to find ways that they can help. And I wrote about um, these two teenagers who came up with a, a website um, two Harvard um, students came up with a website similar to Airbnb, except it's for um, Ukrainians looking for places to stay as they um, escape the war. So it's called Ukraine Take Shelter. And that's a great website. Also, Host for Ukraine is another one where you can post if you have space to house a Ukrainian refugee or family. Um, you can post it there. And then Someone else reached out to me from Slow Food, who is trying to make a welcome circle for Ukraine um, people through the Slow Food ethos, you know, meaning that, you know, trying to match people up who care about the earth. You know, if you're a gardener, if you're a farmer, if you're a baker, um, a chef, whatever your connection is, you know, but trying to find people of like mind that you might want to house here and really bring them into the community and help them get set up. And so um, I have links for that as well. I also talked about World Central Kitchen, who is just amazing. Um, Chef Jose Andres has you know, come to the rescue, starting with Haiti in 2010 after the earthquake. Um, and then he was, of course, in Puerto Rico. He's helped cook for um, Afghani refugees. Anyway, he's amazing and he's doing it again for Ukrainian refugees. So there's a way you can donate for that. And then of course you can go to the Global Citizens website which has a whole bunch of other links. But um, you know, if you don't have space and, you, you know, and you're not inclined to wanna host a refugee, you know, maybe you can donate some money to some of these organizations that are really trying to help out. Um, but it's just heartbreaking. And, um, you know, just try to imagine what it would be like if all of a sudden your life was just completely closed down and you had to escape. Um, it's really, really, really scary. Um, other things in the news I wrote about, there was a, a climate justice um, uh, protest up in Albany last week. Um, unfortunately, there wasn't a huge showing for that, but it was really so important. It was, you know, demanding that Albany put aside $15 billion into the state budget to fight climate change. And 
you know, we have the Climate Leadership Protection Act that was passed that needs to be funded. And, you know, everything keeps getting put off, you know, next year, next year, next year. And we need to do it now or we're not going to meet those deadlines. So um, please, you know, support New York Renews, um, Long Island Progressives, you know, anyone, any or grassroots organization in New York working on climate change, they need your support. And next weekend, not this weekend, but next weekend, um, I am hosting along with Slow Food North Shore, NOFA New York, um, and Deep Roots Farmers Market and the Sisters of St. Joseph. We are all coming together to fund and support a Long Island CSA fair. And this is going to be a great opportunity. We have about 20 farmers coming out to tell you about their CSAs. Um, come spend the day. Hopefully we'll have nice weather. Uh, we have a couple food trucks coming. We even have a knife sharpening truck coming. So if you have knives that need some sharpening, bring it, bring them down and you can have your knives sharpened while you visit all the farmers. Um, and we have live music coming too. So bring your dancing shoes, but it should be really a fun day. You know, it's, you know, we've all been um, sequestered inside a lot during this winter and hopefully this will be the beginning to come out and get started. Um, St. Patty's day is the day that we typically want to put our snow peas and sugar sap peas into the ground. Um, I just received my new seeds uh, yesterday in the mail. So I'm excited about that, but I'm going to wait another week. You know, there's a lot of um, literature out there saying, you know, to resist the temptation of getting into your soil too soon, because there's so many pollinators that are hiding out in our, gardens. So give them another week to, um, to come out on their own. You know, they suggest that you wait till it's, you know, in the fifties, at least for a couple of weeks before you start. So this is our first week of 50 degree weather. Um, I'm actually taking off for California tomorrow. And I read that it's going to be 70 degrees here and 60 degrees in California. And, and there's expecting rain in California and beautiful here. So it just follows me wherever I go. Anyway, um, but I hope you can come out to the CSA Fair. That is on Saturday, March 26th from 11 to 3. And we have a rain date on Sunday if um, the rain, if the weather doesn't cooperate with us. And um, then I also wanted to just raise awareness about another organization helping Ukrainians called Share the Meal. And if there's the AGCO Agriculture Foundation, which is a private foundation. They just gave a $100,000 donation to the World Food Program. And it's just another way that you can give. So that's called Share the Meal. So check that out. Um, and now I want to share with you this week's recipe. I made a seeded whole grain soda bread. And you know, very often, one of my favorite things to do is to see recipes that intrigue me, but that are not vegan. And then what can I do to um, manipulate the recipe and make it vegan and make it just as good, but make it healthier for us and for the planet. So this is a seeded whole grain soda bread that I transformed to be vegan. You want to, these are the ingredients. You want to start with a quarter cup of organic millet or brown rice. And I have to tell you, I went to Whole Foods and my Whole Foods in New York, and I went to three of them. None of them carried millet. I even went to the customer service desk and the only millet they had was in the brown rice millet 
soba noodles that they carry. So um, I, you know, had a little talk with the with the manager there. I mean, to have a whole foods or health food store that size and not carry millet is inexcusable. So anyway, um, you might have to order the millet online or go to your local small health food store that's committed to macrobiotics a little bit more. They certainly would have millet. A quarter cup of organic quinoa, two tablespoons of amaranth, a cup of organic rolled oats, plus a quarter cup that you're gonna use for sprinkling on top of the bread, a can of coconut milk, and when you're buying coconut milk, you want uh, coconut milk. It comes in a can that's just coconut milk and water, maybe, but just coconut milk. You don't want any gargum added or any other stabilizers added. Um, so the one brand that I buy, they, they, come, they have a classic and an original. I mean, a classic and a simple. You want to look for the simple coconut milk. That's the one that has nothing. Trader Joe's is also a good one. It has nothing else in it. And then another cup of a milk alternative, whatever one you like, whether it's oat milk or almond milk or whatever. Two tablespoons plus one and a half teaspoons of apple cider vinegar. One tablespoon of vegetable oil. Three cups of organic whole wheat flour. One cup of organic all-purpose flour. Two tablespoons ground flaxseed. One tablespoon kosher salt. Two teaspoons baking soda a quarter cup of sunflower seeds, plus another quarter cup to sprinkle on top of the bread, four tablespoons of coconut oil, and three tablespoons of brown rice syrup. And what you have to do first is you have to make the um, alternative buttermilk um, because the original recipe called for buttermilk. So you're going to do that by emptying the can of coconut milk into a four-cup Pyrex measuring cup using an immersion blender you're going to blend the coconut milk until the fat and the milk are combined. Then you add the milk alternative and the apple cider vinegar and let that sit in a warm place and let that um, start to curdle and come together kind of like a buttermilk. Meanwhile, in a medium-sized saucepan, you're going to mix the millet or brown rice, the quinoa, the amaranth, and the one cup of oats with a half a cup of water and let that sit for 10 minutes as well. Add one cup of the coconut milk mixture once it's ready. Simmer the grains for about 10 minutes and then remove them from the heat and let that sit for about two hours to cool. So you have to plan this ahead, but it doesn't take a lot of work. It's quite simple. You're gonna preheat your oven to 350. You're gonna grease an eight inch diameter cast iron skillet. And then in a large bowl, you're gonna mix the whole wheat flour, the all purpose flour, the flaxseed, the salt, the baking soda, and a quarter cup of the sunflower seeds. Add the coconut oil and using your fingers the same way you would do it if you were making a pie crust, you're going to add the coconut oil and break it up with your fingers so that it um, comes up into like little small pea-sized pieces. Then you're going to add the brown rice syrup and one tablespoon of the oil into that and another one and a quarter cups of coconut milk mixture, the um, buttermilk alternative, um, into the saucepan of the grains and mix that well. Add the wet ingredients into the dry ingredients. And using a wooden spoon, you're going to mix that dough up until it all starts coming together. It will still be a little sticky, but it really comes together like a big ball of dough. And then you're going to um, place that into the cast iron pan, brush it with the remaining coconut milk mixture, and top it with the oats and the sunflower seeds. Cut a X into it. And don't cut it too deep, just score it with a little X. Um, that will help the baking. 
and you're going to bake it in a um, 350-degree oven until it registers about 190 degrees in the center. And that takes about an hour, anywhere from 55 to 70 minutes. But my, I was in for about an hour. And then you're going to let it cool in the pan, and that's it. It was really delicious. It was quite simple. We actually um, we you know made the uh, buttermilk alternative, let it sit for two hours, and while it was sitting, we went out for a nice walk. Then we came back and just you know put it all together very quickly. So um, you know just time it. You know know that it has that amount of time, but it's not a lot of work. And now it is my pleasure to introduce all of you to. Dana. Dana is the author of Recipe for Survival, What You Can Do to Live a Healthier and More Environmentally Friendly Life. And Dana Ellis Hunis is an adjunct professor with the ACLA Fielding School of Public Health, a senior dietitian at the Ronald Reagan UCLA Medical Center, and author of the new book, Recipe for Survival, What You Can Do to Live a Healthier and More Environmental Friendly Life. She earned her BS in Nutrition and Human Biology from Cornell University, her Master's of Public Health, and PhD in Public Health from UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. And she teaches courses on nutrition, chronic disease, and the environment. And her research examines the relationship among climate change, food choices, and food security. And she also looks at how these relationships affect our health, as well as the health of the planet and its oceans. And she's been interviewed all over the place, um, NBC Nightly News, WBAI, Huffington Post, Los Angeles Times, many others, and now PRN. So um, Dana, it's a pleasure to have you. Thanks for joining me. Yes, good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. So your book is just so great. I mean, you have, you know, the expertise to really connect all the dots. I mean, I connect all the dots all the time for people, but I don't have the same level of um, um, deep science education that you have. And so it's just really wonderful to um, read your book and be inspired by it. So thank you for writing it. Maybe you can share with us what compelled you to write this book. Yeah, it was a it was definitely a few things. Um, it was really just learning about these connections during my doctoral studies where I went to Ethiopia and I, you know, saw firsthand individuals who are migrating from their rural villages into the city because they just simply couldn't grow enough food. There wasn't enough rain that year, or there, you know, were other environmental and climate change circumstances that were affecting them. And they they knew that they could articulate that. Um, so that was one thing. And then also uh, pretty soon after finishing my, my dissertation, um, I gave birth to a tiny little baby. You know, he wasn't even six pounds at birth. And so I'm looking down at him after everything I had learned. And I'm just thinking to myself, oh my goodness, um, I want this planet to be able to uh, support him and feed him the way it did for me and for my parents and, and all the generations before me. So um, I think it was just those combinations of life experiences um, and also the the knowledge I gained while doing my research that compelled me to put it all on paper so that I could share it with others and not just other people in academia but people who live and you know work in this real world yeah you know I was in a conversation just the other day with some people who were saying you know I was talking to them about organic and whatever they were saying to me 
well, you know, my grandmother's, you know, lived to 103 and she never ate organic. And I was like, you know what? She did. Back then, everything was organic. I mean, it was before the Green Revolution, right? Right. So she grew up, you know, and we realized so much of our, our foundational health is developed when you're young. And so when, the, when she was young, you know, it was before all the chemicals from World War II were being used on the fields. And, Absolutely. Um, and, you know, you didn't think twice about it. Even when I first became a vegetarian, you know, I became a vegetarian, but I wasn't only buying organic. I mean, I didn't really know the difference and it wasn't that obvious. Um, and as it became obvious, I was like, whoa. So, um, you know, so you're so right that, you know, we need to start our kids when they're really young mm-hmm. in eating well. And of course, that's up to us, right? They're Correct. not making decisions yeah. when they're first born. So, <laughs> um, so it's really up to us. Um, and I actually read a really another, and I know this is a whole another sidetrack, but I read a whole thing about um, when you're nursing, you know, how a nursing baby actually backwashes into the mother's breast milk and that signals the mother's um, breast milk to adjust so if the baby has any type of infection or any type of anything a mother's body will compensate for that and come up with the immunities that the baby needs and fix it I thought that was amazing yeah, anyway, well, then I'm was so just, glad I breastfed for almost, th- or actually a little more than three years. So no wonder yeah. he stayed so healthy. <laughs> it's true. I mean, it's the best, best thing you can do. So um, so if you could only do one thing, because we're also pressed for time, mm-hmm. what makes the biggest impact for my listeners? Yes, as an individual, and I'm not talking about policy here. I'm speaking specifically about you as an individual. The most impactful thing that you can do is look at your plate. And I know it seems so simple and so um, pedantic almost to, to just say, look at your plate, but it really honestly, truly is the most impactful thing you can do. What you eat really makes a huge difference in the environmental footprint. So if you think about it like this, if you eat, for example, one cheeseburger, that's kind of like driving 10 miles in your car in terms of emissions and taking about three months worth of showers. Whereas if you were to eat, you know, a black bean burger instead, that would be the equivalent of driving half a mile and taking, you know, a week's worth of showers. And so that's actually more impactful than how much you drive and how much you shower. So, or how long you shower, I should say. So truly, when you think about it like that and how much land the foods that we eat require to grow, um, it takes, you know, a hundred times more land to grow the same number of calories of beef, for example, and then it does legumes or wheat or other grain products. So it, that's why I say it truly is the most impactful thing you as an individual can do. Yeah, you know, I, it's true. And I know I was a vegetarian for a very long time, but I only transitioned to being vegan or plant-based, I'd say in the last two and a half years, even though mm-hmm. the majority of what I ate was plant-based, but just giving up that last bit of, you know, mm-hmm. egg and dairy and an occasional fish even, um, you know, it, it was really the commitment that I wanted to make to the earth and, you know, to my health too, but really, you know, I just 
felt like I've been talking about this for so long and it's, you know, it is such a impactful thing, you know, and, um, you know, I don't feel like there's any, you know, vegan police that are going to come down on me if I ever, you know, take a bite of something that's off that diet, but Mm -hmm. 99.999% of the time, you know, I can feel good about what I'm doing towards the planet. And I think that's something that um, people can feel if they're, if they're doing that, if they're really consciously making that effort to make the um, planet healthier. Yes, Um, I actually 100% agree with that. I mean, and that's the whole goal is I want people to feel empowered and self, you know, efficacious and good about what they're doing and, and also help their own health at the same time. So absolutely everything you just said supports all of those things. Mm -hmm. Um, So can you talk a little bit about the connections um, between what we, the environment, because I know I I talk about a lot and people, (laughs) you know, hear it. But maybe you can really spell it out for people a little bit more. I mean, you just mentioned, of course, 100 times more land to grow or mm-hmm. produce meat than a, a veggie burger. But maybe you could go into that a little bit more. Sure. So there's, I mean, there's really just so many things to address in that question, but I'll, I'll try to pick out a few. Um, in fact, one quarter and some reports, the, the more... Um, I guess the less conservative reports actually state that as much as half of all our greenhouse gas emissions in the world could come from agriculture and specifically animal agriculture. Because if you think about it, um, you know, you have cows making methane emissions, you have their waste products from manure uh, flowing out into the rivers and streams that ends up in the ocean, killing ocean life. Um, And, you know, we depend on our oceans for creating a lot of the oxygen that we breathe. One third to one half of the oxygen we breathe actually comes from the oceans. And if we're destroying the oceans uh, with all of our animal and just regular agriculture, pesticides, herbicides, um, the uh, fertilizers and all the things that you were talking about earlier, you know, that really does do a lot of harm to the ocean environment, as well as all the emissions that we put into the air. Um, And then, of course, people who live near some of these, what I call, well, what I don't call, what the government calls CAFOs or concentrated animal feeding operations, you know, the air quality around those isn't good for human health either. So um, all of those things, plus the amount of feed that is required to grow a cow, for example, or um, a goat or a lamb. Um, you know, that is just very inefficient use of calories around the world. We've got people um, starving. You know, I, I hate to use that imagery, but it's the truth um, all across the globe in the global south. And all the calories that we, we feed to animals could feed billions of more humans. So the way that we use our foods um, to feed agricultural animals um, that are not even good for health really does affect the environment and it really does affect our own health as well. Um, And then they just, you know, only 3% of water on earth is fresh water. The rest of it is all salt water, which we can't really drink unless we want to employ very expensive and very energy costly um, desalinators. But for the most part, we depend on this fresh water to grow all of our food, 
to feed all of our animals and ourselves. So when you, you know, that's a, that's a lot of things to talk about all at once, but you know, it really is a huge impact. And then I guess the other thing that comes to mind immediately is, you know, thinking about the Amazon rainforest. Um, the vast majority of the forest there that is cut down is for animal agriculture, for grazing, for growing animal feed. And I just read an article recently in a journal and it was saying, um, you know, the way that we're cutting down the Amazon is becoming so egregious that pretty soon even the Amazon will not be able to recover um, in terms of supporting the wildlife that live there, putting more water into the ground, the microclimates that exist around that. So, you know, all in all, it sounds absolutely terrifying. Um, all the things I've just mentioned that we are uh, putting on the earth every day, but I think it also has to be said because it really is a crisis. And the longer we wait to do anything about it, to act on it, the, the harder it's going to be to fix. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, when you talked about um, how much feed it takes to keep animals alive and that those cows could be feeding people, that was my impetus for becoming vegetarian originally 50 years ago when I read Diet for a Small Planet. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was one of, you know, Frances Moore Lappe's main, um, main things in her book at that time was mm-hmm. about <clears throat> how much it takes to feed animals to keep them alive versus feeding people that are hungry and that we're growing food just for the animals instead of growing food for people. Um, right. I always find it funny that they call people food specialty crops. The other right. foods are, are regular commodity crops and anything that feeds us is a specialty crop when that should be the main commodity to be all of our food. Um, uh, yeah, it's just really quite crazy. Um, mm-hmm. What was I doing? Um, I just wanted to ask you, and it just went out of my brain. Um, <laughs> that happens a lot. Um, you know, a lot of people, when I, we talk about cooking for plant-based, plant-based food, um, one of the things I hear so often is how much time it takes mm-hmm. compared to just sticking a piece of meat under the broiler. And it's true. It does take more time. Um, what ideas do you have for that for some of my listeners? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I definitely hear the argument it takes more time. I don't know if I if I fully agree with that because at least in our house, we, you know, we're big on meal planning. And I do talk about that in the book a bit um, as a way to help people. But over the weekend, we do a lot of batch cooking. So, you know, we are members of a CSA. We get our big box and we process all of the vegetables at once. Um, so that is, you know, one time and done. Yeah, I guess it takes 20 minutes to process all those vegetables um, and throw them in the oven if they're, you know, like the parsnips or the rutabagas or the carrots uh, to roast them. But some of the other vegetables, you know, once they're processed, all you have to do is throw them in a bowl and, you know, add a couple other green vegetables to it. For example, like we use frozen organic edamame and we put that in our salad or for- frozen organic corn and you know, it doesn't take a lot of effort um, once you've put the effort in. So I think, you know, and also we do when we back cook on the weekends, we will eat leftovers during the week. And oftentimes those leftovers take taste better. And so I think if you're very conscientious about your time and 
thoughtful about how you want to uh, set up your meals for the week. I honestly don't think it takes any more time um, to eat a plant-based diet than it does to eat a, you know, more of a standard American diet. It's all really in perspective and it's all really about um, being conscientious with your time and how you use that time. And that's, I mean, that's, that's works for us. And we have very busy lives with an eight-year-old. So Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, one of the keys that I tell people is like when I make brown rice, which takes 40 minutes as opposed to white rice that takes 20, Mm -hmm. you know, I make twice as much or three times as much and I divide it and I put some into the freezer. And even when I, when I freeze it, very often I'm freezing it in um, either I freeze it in a Pyrex uh, container so that, you know, you can take it right out and you can put it right into the oven to, Mm -hmm. to heat it up. Or I put it into a Ziploc bag and I do it really flat. Like yes. I take all the air that I freeze it flat so that it defrosts quickly. Because if yes. you have a big batch together, it takes a long time to defrost. So flattening the food in the freezer really um, helps being able to defrost it. But I think, um, you know, I know people have commented with my meals, you know, very often, maybe because I'm not always eating simple food um Mm -hmm. i'm trying to very often satisfy meat eaters who are now going to eat vegetarian so um you know so i'll make a vegan moussaka or a vegan lasagna or something that is a little bit more um substantial substantial and that (laughs) and it does take time you know i know when i you know i'm a a chef i cook for people uh, private chef I cook for people in their home and I always felt like I was cheating if I made them salmon because literally you just take the salmon you put it up to the broiler you put it in a pan sure. that's it sure. you know it really you know if I needed to get out quickly you know I'll make them a salmon you know and get out quickly so um <clears throat> so anyway I understand how it does take more time but it is planning and it's worth it I mean we're talking about the health of our planet and the future I mean it is a major major issue um i wanted to just comment on your book because i love how you separate it into two parts and the first part is a little depressing um it know, is it, you're it, absolutely right it's, it is <laughs> you know it's depressing but it's okay because people need to really see the reality of it right get that depressed to maybe to be willing to let go of some of the ways that they eat or the way they shower or the way they wash their dishes or, you know, whatever it is that they do, there's ways of doing things that are more mindful, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's turning the water off when you're sudsing up all the dishes and then rinsing all at once so that you're not just leaving the water running constantly. Um, You know, all these little things, they add up. And if, if everyone's doing it, it really adds up. So, um, so I really found that amazing. Um, I thought maybe you could talk just a little bit. You talk about politics and dietary guidelines. And, you know, I've watched that going back to the 1980s, you know. And, um, you know, when McGovern, I think it was, first was trying to recommend that people eat less meat. And the meat industry fought them tooth and nail to say, you know, choose lean meat instead of cut down on meat. You know, I mean maybe you could just shed some light on how connected um, what we're being told is to who's paying who off. 
Right. No, I mean, absolutely. Um, it's it's really, a, in my opinion, a, a huge shame that the same people, the same government entity, the USDA, the United States Department of Agriculture, is both responsible for subsidizing um, a lot of the crops, commodities that are grown in the United States, such as corn, soy, including um, dairy, for example, um, and they're also responsible for creating the dietary guidelines that are recommending what people ought to eat for good health. So there, to me, that is a huge conflict of interest because Absolutely. how can you on one side be subsidizing um, with our taxpayer dollars, these farmers to grow certain foods and at the same time be saying, oh, well, maybe you shouldn't eat as many of the foods because they may not be super healthy for your health or the environment, but we're paying for them. So we need to encourage people to eat them. So it really is this big conflict of interest. And what I would personally like to see is that they are separate entities. You know, um, we really do need to have a third party, um, unbiased panel of uh, experts who are recommending dietary guidelines, which is what, what the DGAC or the Dietary Guideline for Americans um, Committee is designed to do. And then those are the recommendations that stand, not that they then go before Congress or, you know, other um, entities of the government that are very uh, much in the in the pocket of these industries. So, I, you know, that that would be what I would like to see. Um, but I don't think that's going to happen <laughs> just because of the <laughs> Right, just because of the nature of the beast. And then, um, you know, the USDA also decides what goes in school lunches for our children. So it really is very muddied um, and it's not a fair fight, if you ask me. Yeah. Yeah, they're in there with the farm bill, right? The farm bill's exactly. coming up again. And they also determine, I mean, the most, the biggest expense in the farm bill is the supplemental uh, SNAP program, you know, right. and they keep trying to push that back which is you know a lifeline for so many people but okay. like you said the connections of commodity foods and the school lunch program that's why they keep pushing the commodity foods into the school lunch program it's like what right. do they have too much of all the horrible gmo'd highly processed right horrible food and that's what they send to our children yes. as opposed to you look at meal programs in france or Italy. I mean, if the bread's two hours old, they won't even serve right. it to them, you know? Right, right. You know, it's I was just... so excited by uh, the mayor of New York City when he declared, um, was it Meatless Monday or, or Vegan well, Friday? Well, they, they've had Vegan Friday. They've had but, yeah. Meatless Monday for a while, but now they have Vegan Friday. Right. But it's not going over well, you know, uh, because you can't just tell cafeteria ladies and believe me I'm, you know i was the farm to school coordinator at glen cove public school for a while bringing mm -hmm. healthy food to the kids and you know the women that i was working with in the cafeteria were lovely they were you know half of them were from right from, directly from italy and were great cooks but they weren't allowed they were responsible for defrosting and sticking in the oven the right. food that they were given they weren't really allowed to cook um and, you know, so if you tell them all of a sudden you're going to make pasta, vegan pasta, well, I guess that's probably the easiest with just tomato <laughs> sauce and that, that they made on their own, <clears throat> but something else, a, a vet, cooking a vegetable or, you know, a main course, mm -hmm. um, and you don't tell them what to do with 
the tofu or the beans or whatever, it's not going to be very good, you know, and they really need to learn how to cook that way. And so it's sad. Um, You know, I, I used to always say, you know, I feel like I have one chance to, um, to turn someone on to tofu. And if it's not good, (laughs) they're never going back again. Right. You know, and I, you know, the first time my mother tasted tofu, you know, she's like, Oh, it's spongy. That's no flavor. You know, and you're right. If that's, if it's your first time and you don't know what you're doing with it, it might not, but tofu absorbs whatever flavor you give it. It has no right flavor of its own. And it's come such a long way. I mean, I remember having tofu as a child and, and I think there was like, you know, one or two versions of it. It was either like soft or hard and, uh, (laughs) right you know, my, my mother steamed everything. So, but I love, I mean, I love tofu now. There's these super firm ones that are vacuum packed and honestly, like texture is so chewy. It's, it's almost like you're biting into something really substantial. And then, as you said, absolutely. If you cook it with spices and herbs or sauces, you know, it, it absorbs everything. So we use it, you know, in our, in our enchiladas, our black bean enchiladas, and it just, it really adds a lot of um, texture and depth, but, and of course, protein, which a lot of people are worried about. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the, th- the thing that I was going to ask you that I didn't remember before mm. was, you know, in growing vegetables, um, you know, we talk a lot about the quality of the soil yes. and the biome in the soil mm-hmm. and how that is connected to the biome in our own gut and so much more has been coming out about gut health and how so much of our um, unhealthy side is related to um, inflammation in our gut. I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about that and how a plant-based diet um, could be good for that. Yeah, so absolutely. We have, you know, many different species of bacteria that live inside of our intestine and they do they they keep us healthy or if it's the wrong mixture they can make us unhealthy a lot of chronic diseases diabetes heart disease stroke um even obesity you know are inflammatory responses um and inflammation in the body can exacerbate them so having the right mixture and supporting the microbiome in our in our intestinal tract, the bacteria is really important to keep that inflammation at bay and also just to help us digest our food in a healthy way. So when we digest food, there's a lot of like amino acids and fatty acids that get put into our body that help us stay healthy. They help regulate, you know, our insulin response and, and all sorts of um, other inflammatory markers in the body. And so by feeding our body um, really healthy foods that are high in fiber, that feed the bacteria in our gut, that really does make a huge difference on the health of our gut. And so when we eat meat, because it can be acidic and inflammatory, it actually can mess up that healthy um, mixture of bacteria in the gut. And then, like you said, um, there's this great book out there also, um, Kiss the Ground, and it talks all about the importance of soil health and the bacteria and the nematodes and the worms and everything else that is in the soil that we need to have healthy food. Um, Because you're absolutely right, without healthy soil, it's very hard to have healthy food. And we're losing topsoil at rates um, that are 
kind of scary when you read about them. Um, oh, yeah. So, yeah. So we need to do everything we can to protect the topsoil. And really, when you think about it, we are all interconnected in the sense that healthy healthy soil makes healthy food, healthy food makes healthy people. Um, and it, it really is all the same. It really is all connected. Yeah. Um, so then what's your take on the hydroponics and people being able to put hydroponics out as organic? Um, you know, I know there's so much talk about that. You know, I, I'm on the board of the Northeast Organic Farming Association and, um, you know, the feelings about hydroponics, not that hydroponics is necessarily all bad, but it's not the same as organic grown in soil. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, I'm certainly not an expert in hydroponics, um, but I guess my feeling is if it's done in a sustainable and environmentally you know, friendly way where the water is recirculated, recycled, um, and the crops are grown without you know, added pesticides and herbicides and um, fertilizers and all of, of those types of things, my, my sense is, you know, you're better off still getting as many, you know, fruits, vegetables, whole grains um, into your diet. Uh, and if it saves land and if it saves soil and if it saves, you know, the earth from uh, being more environmentally destroyed, I, I personally have nothing against it, but like I said, I'm, I'm not an expert in hydroponics mm-hmm. in the sense of the word. And, um, but now I'm curious to read even more about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, the census is it's not, the, it's not the same, you know, it's, it's great for feeding people, um, mm-hmm. you know, as a, as an alternative, but you are not getting that um, microbial benefit sure. that you get when food is grown in soil. Um, Right. But I will say, you know, unfortunately, the way too many farms um, grow their food in a conventional way, and I I hate to use the term conventional because that's not the way foods were conventionally grown. Grandma had it. Right. Right. Exactly. So like conventional farms, their soils are denuded. They don't have those healthy biomes anyway. So I guess you have to- you're right. I'm talking about organic, right? Oh, right. Sure. Yeah. I'm talking about organic. I'm not yes. comparing conventional vegetables. Um, you know, the other thing, you know, I know you have the whole nursing background. Um, and I know, you know, I sometimes go into medical schools and do cooking demos and talk to them about, you know, plant-based diet a bit. But as with your experience, how do you feel, um, how much nutrition did you get in nursing school? Because I know in medical school, I've been told that, doctors get typically like two hours of nutrition in their four years of medical school, you know? Yeah. yeah so How actually, is it in I, nursing I'm, school? I, I'm not a nurse. I'm a dietitian. Oh. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Well, then no, you got no. nutrition. That's okay. So yeah. So actually my entire education was nutrition. Um, you, but you are correct. Uh, physicians, um, and I'm actually working on a, a book chapter right now uh, that discusses that and how less than 1% of a medical doctor's education is in nutrition. And I personally believe that to be um, a travesty because, you know, when, when we see our doctors uh, for, for the vast majority of people, they're the ones who are saying, hey, you know, you have these health issues um, and we need to do something about it. So um, you need to eat more healthfully, but, you know, they don't really have the background to explain 
how to do that, what that means. Uh, and so too often there people are just written a prescription for a pill, um, as opposed to a lifestyle change, but no, absolutely. Um, you are correct in that medical doctors get hardly any nutrition training unless they, you know, majored in nutrition in undergraduate, which I do know some doctors who did. Um, Mm -hmm. but it is, you know, it is unfortunately a, an area that is lacking. But even, even traditional nutrition for dietitians, how was your education? Because I feel like, you know, so much of funding you hear, you know, the same way we were talking about funding with the politics and the um, conflict of interest. You know, you have the American Dairy Association paying for a lot of the health uh, information in public schools, you know, so I don't know how it right. is in you know, and so that's why they keep pushing milk and telling you how wonderful milk is. And, right. Um, you know, and dietitians are responsible for the meals that people are fed in hospitals and for the school lunch program. And so, you know, I know pe- the dietitians that I have worked with before have had to do most of their education after school, learning on their own the kind of things that they wanted to learn. Like, did you learn about all these connections that you have when you were in dietitian school? Or is this something that you kind of learned after you looked at your baby and saw that, oh, my God, I want this planet to survive. I need to really dive in. Right. So my nutrition undergraduate education at Cornell was very much um, very like chemistry, very, you know, biological. So it wasn't so much there wasn't a whole lot of, you know, the dairy industry um, affecting that education per se, although it's a very big ag school with its own dairy. Monsanto, Monsanto gives a lot of money to Cornell. I know. Monsanto is really in there. And they, so they, you know, I know Cornell think, you know, has promoted GMOs, for instance. Right. But no, I I did not learn about those uh, in my undergraduate. It was very much like the biochemical sciences and, and Mm -hmm. food science per, you know, very much, like to the to the molecule, like that type of uh, education. And then um, I did take Colin Campbell's uh, vegetarian nutrition course at Cornell before, ah. uh, before he left. And so I was very fortunate to get that piece of the education, um, which is where I first learned about this. So um, I was glad to have been able to take that class. And I have actually uh, worked with him since then on yeah. topics, but no, I would say it was more during my master's in public health and my doctoral research. So around 2009, uh, that I began really learning the connections that I make in the book. So you, you are correct. It was not in, um, you know, dietetics. It was not in my undergraduate. And then during my internship at Emory university hospital, that's very much, um, how do we treat disease inpatients who are in the hospital? And I am very fortunate now to work at UCLA Medical Center where we do have a very large plant-based menu um, where patients can choose a lot of plant-based items. And we're so fortunate to live um, you know, less than 200 miles from farms where we get a lot of organic produce in the yeah. hospital. So I would say, I'm, you know, I, I do feel very fortunate to have the lifestyle and the experiences that I do have. Mm -hmm. And in your book, you talk a lot about the um, connection between food security Mm -hmm. and the environment. Maybe you can talk to my listeners a little bit about that. How does um, 
the environment and what we've been talking about affect food security? Well, it's actually fairly simple if you think about it. If we don't have enough water um, and there's too much heat on the land, which makes the water come out of the land more quickly through evapotranspiration, um, we're simply not able to grow enough crops. Um, and then we're losing soils, uh, as we've talked about during the this past you know half hour. Um, and all of those things combined along with, you know, erratic weather, not knowing when the rains are going to come or having drought followed by flood, uh, followed by another drought. All of these changes in the environment make it a lot more difficult to grow crops where crops have normally grown. Um, you can end up with another dust bowl, for example. Um, and so just this uncertainty of being able to grow sufficient food um, does affect food security. And then also the idea that uh, more carbon in the atmosphere affects how much or what types of crops can be grown also is you know, a big thing. So when you look at all of these issues combined, will there be enough land? Will there be enough soil? Will there be enough water? Um, it really does affect food security, both locally and globally. Mm -hmm. And do you feel like um, this COVID pandemic that we've just all been going through for the last two years, um, do you think that has raised people's awareness to some of these connections or what do you think the impact of this pandemic has been on our food system? Well, I unfortunately read too many stories <laughs> during the pandemic about you know food crops being plowed over, um, milk just being. Um, oh yeah, that was horrible. Yeah, and, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, all of these resources um, just getting tossed down the drain, and then you have supply chain issues. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, and now you have um, inflation. You know, so I think people are feeling a sense of, oh my gosh, what is happening? Um, I don't know yet if people have made the, the connections necessarily um, because a lot of it is still very nebulously talked about. And it's not that, um, you know, supply chain issues were changed because all of a sudden you're no longer buying, you know, restaurants are no longer buying these big bulk food items and all these companies have to change the way their packaging is. And that had effect, a huge effect on the supply chain and what people could buy in stores. So I do think, you know, people are making some connection to food and um, the pandemic and food security, but I don't necessarily know how much of the climate aspect has been added to that. My sense mm -hmm. is not enough. <laughs> right, I'm sure. Um, yeah, I think one thing that, you know, I certainly saw in New York was that the, you know, the farmers, the local farmers were much more resilient. They were able to True. change how they did things and adjust where the big mega um, agricultural systems, you know, like you talk about the milk being dumped, you know, not so many of the small local farmers had to dump the same way the big milk producers had to because they're used to you know shipping it out in big milk things and they didn't know how to adjust and make it smaller and so um i think at least you know that's something that i was aware of that the the smaller farms um 
were really, and the farmers were really able to shift things around and really kind of adjust to get food to people who needed it. Well, and that's an excellent point, too, is, you know, a lot of small farms do have a lot more of the regenerative and the um, more of a, instead of a monoculture, because they are smaller, they tend to you know be more diverse and diversify what they're growing. So that is an excellent point, that diversification, um, being smaller, uh, being more regenerative can actually really be very resilient. So, you know, I, I, it is a shame that so many farms now are these big industrial complexes when it's really the smaller farms, I think that as you, as you so well put it, are resilient, are able to adapt and are better for the environment. Mm -hmm. You know, and also I think the general public thinks that, you know, you need these big industrial farms to feed the world when in reality, the majority of the planet is fed by small farmers. Am I correct? Yes, you are correct. Uh, you know, uh, certainly in many developing countries, that's still the case. Yeah. Um, it's really in these, you know, like the United States and, and some, even in some European countries um, where you have more of these conglomerates and these industrial complexes that don't farm in environmentally friendly ways. Um, but you're right. You are absolutely right. It's for the most part, in most countries, it is still these small acre, two acre, um, certainly under 50 acre uh, farms that are growing the vast majority of food for people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when people go, you know, travel and they say food's so delicious over in Italy or whatever, right. you know, it's because they're getting the food right from the farm, you know, right? it tastes different. Um, I don't think people realize that. Um, and I think lastly, I would love to have you um, share some of your knowledge about the plastics, plastics in the ocean. How, um, you know, I think we've, at least my, my listeners have certainly heard, heard me talk about that we ingest a credit card's worth of plastic a week, which yeah. has me freaked out. Um, are you ingesting plastic even if you're not eating fish or the plastic, where else is the pl plastics in microbeads even in the water, right? Right. I mean, there, there's plastic. It's just infiltrated our lives in so many ways. It's, you know, it gets into the ocean when it's not properly um, diverted in, in the waste stream. Um, and then it does degrade the chemicals. It's, it's not necessarily the, even the little like bits of plastic you're ingesting. It's the chemicals from the plastic that um, get into you know, the fish and their fats or even the water um, or even, you know, when when ocean water evaporates into the clouds and then rains down, you know, some of those chemicals may still be in that water. So it's not even so much necessarily that we're ingesting the little plastic bits, which we are, but also just the chemicals. And so those chemicals can have a lot of um, dangerous effects in the body. They can be carcinogenic. They can uh, affect our nervous system, our brain, our uh, ability to, to think properly. Um, they affect our endocrine system, our hormones, our ability to get pregnant or, um, you know, have healthy babies. So absolutely, you know, the amount of plastics that we use in our lives um, and that companies use around the world is just, it's mind boggling and it's really sad and, and there does need to be more done. And I was so pleased to see the, um, the laws that passed in the European Union uh, just, I believe, last week 
to, to really help that issue. I just hope, you know, I hope it's a meaningful law and I hope that it really does um, have an impact and take effect. And I hope that we are smart enough in the United States to take on a similar. Which uh, law are you talking, referring to? Um, it was the one that was, um, I believe, banning new plastics production or certain, um, I can't remember the exact name of name of it now, but it was in the so, European Union. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, they're much more aware of that than they than we are i mean just you know not even just with food things just with everything i mean i you know i remember being over in europe 10 years ago and finding out that apple has to use the same charger for all the phones all the phones ha have the same chargers and they don't you know new phones come out but the chargers stay the same so they don't have to keep throwing out these chargers every time apple comes out with a new phone there's a new charger that goes with it and you right. have to throw all those other ones out you know, just they're not making things to um, they're not making things to reuse and they don't make things to last as long, you know, and just everything is ending up in a landfill. And, you know, the more people realize we can't really throw things out. Um, we didn't even have time. We didn't even touch on waste. But I know you <laughs> get into waste a lot in your book. Yes, um, food waste, food waste, recycling, composting, um, using all of the vegetable. I mean, you know, I talk about that a lot. It's so important um, for people to do that. And composting is also just such a great way of helping to replenish the soil. You oh, know, as you were talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're losing so much of that topsoil and compost is the best for that. Um, so Dana, if my listeners want to um, find you, I know you said you have some events coming up. Maybe you can share those with my listeners before we run out of time. Yeah, so I'm doing, um, Cambridge University Press is doing a live uh, Q&A with me in a few weeks on April 3rd. It's a Sunday. It will be 6.30 p.m. Cambridge time. Um, so you can look at their website. Um, it's the Cambridge Festival. And I know that if you search my name, you'll, you'll come upon it. And I believe that would be... Um, uh, 1.30 p.m. New York time. And um, and then I also have a couple other live events coming up. I can, I can try to send them your way. Um, and then you can also, I do post a lot of this information as well on my own personal website, which is uh, danaellishunnis.com. So D-A-N-A-E-L-L-I-S-H-U-N-N-E-S.com. Um, and yeah, I'm always open to answering whatever questions people have. Well, that's great. Thank you so much. Your work is so important. Your book is fantastic. Thank you for putting it together and making it so simple to read. I mean, it's really, um, so user-friendly. People can really read it, understand it, and then take action. And so... It's really awesome. Thank you. And everyone out there listening, thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Bhavani at IE Green and my guest, Dana Ellis Hunas, about her book, Recipe for Survival, What You Can Do to Live a Healthier and More Environmental Friendly Life.